You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Ashley Voss. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, August 29th, 2023. This summer's been devastating for the United States, but also across the world with extreme heat. We're seeing record-breaking events. Later in the program, Dana Habib, an architect and urban designer at Indiana University, discusses record high heat waves this summer, causing drought, wildfires, and other negative health impacts. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. But first, your local headlines. At the August 23rd meeting of the Monroe County Board of Commissioners, the board approved Monroe County jail improvements and rezoning requests. Lori Kelly, the Monroe County Health Administrator, reported on the continued increase in COVID cases and emergency room visits. The emergence of BA 2.86 earlier this month has raised concerns with experts over the new variant's highly mutated genetic makeup and lack of information on the strain. We are monitoring the variant EG5. This has been noted to um, be taking a lead in the cause of cases. Also, a new concern is BA 2.86. This new variant is genetically different from Omicron. Um, Therefore, this is a highly mutated variant. It's unclear at this time as to whether this strain will cause more severe illness. Um, But just as a reminder, There are many ways in which we can protect ourselves and others um, from serious illness from COVID-19. This includes hand hygiene, um, ensuring we are up to date with vaccines, testing at the onset of symptoms, and um, use of a mask. COVID test kits are available for free from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Health Services Building located at 119 West 7th Street and at the Monroe County Health Clinic located at 333 East Miller Drive. Jim Shelton, the government relations manager for the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce, spoke on behalf of the court-appointed Special Advocates Group, which represents those in juvenile court due to negligence or abuse. Applications to volunteer will be available to complete online and are due September 8, 2023. Training will be from September 19th to October 19th on Tuesday and Thursday mornings. Jail Commander Kyle Gibbons requested an extension on their contract with Combined Public Communications and the addition of the program Text Behind, an off-site document scanning service that can be used to send mail and electronic messages directly to inmates. The addition will require no additional funding nor cost from inmates. We're really trying to increase efficiency. Uh, And as you guys probably know, that when it comes to legal mail uh, and mail in general, that is something there's high liability with, not just with the protection of the facility, but with ensuring the inmates can properly correspond with their attorneys and the courts and the family and things of that nature. After concerns of an off-site facility potentially breaching attorney-to-client confidentiality, Gibbons assured the commissioners that mail of legal matters will be sent directly to the jail to be opened in front of the inmates. 
Daniel Brown of the Monroe County Planning Department requested a rezone of property located at 3130 North Smith Pike. This rezone would reclassify a portion of the five-acre lot into a medium-density residential area. It would also rezone a portion of the lot to be considered a limited business area. The motion passed 3-0. The next Board of Commissioners meeting will be Wednesday, August 30th at 10 a.m., at Nat U. Hill, located at 100 West Kirkwood Avenue. During the August 21st board meeting of the Richland Bean Blossom Community School Corporation, Assistant Superintendent Matt Irwin gave his regular report. Education fund, uh, the revenue and expenses were pretty close. Expenses were a little bit higher. Um, I had projections higher than what they came in, which is always a good thing. Um, last four months of the year, We'll move around a lot. We got to uh, sure up ADM. Um, we'll have to go through negotiations. We'll look at staff pay. Uh, we'll do all those big things that come up at the end of the year. So that number will continue to move around. But again, in great shape. Um, nothing to worry about there. I did make updates to it based on the Form 54. Um, been continuing to mess around with a little bit on the formula projections as far as, you know, if ADM comes in at this, if ADM comes in at that. So starting to look a little closer at that. I've also started working on the 2024 projections. That also helps me during the budget. So, and we'll talk about the budget in a little bit. So, um, debt service, nothing, nothing to really report out there other than, um, again, we made all of our scheduled debt payments in the month of July. So you'll see those, um, end of the month where we ended was exactly where we thought we would be, um, was only off by about a thousand bucks. Um, so that's a good thing. And then in the operations fund, um, things came in pretty close again as well. We've gotten to the point where we're kind of queuing in on where we're going to be on a lot of these pieces. Uh, so feeling really comfortable there. Um, and then again, just doing some of the same things with the operations funds that I talked about, the education fund. Um, we've continued to uh, show eating into some cash in the operations fund. But at this point, that's not something that I'm uh, really worried about. So. Then Irwin explained the 2024 budget forms for the school corporation and requested permission to advertise them. So this one um, on the permission to advertise the 2024 budget um, and then the forms would be the capital projects plan and the bus replacement plan. Um, on, the, on the budget, um, I put in the board packet, just a copy of the Form 3, which is what gets advertised out on Gateway. That's what every school corporation in the state does. They have to advertise that Form 3. Um, we'll put the capital projects plan, the bus replacement plan would go on the school website. It also gets posted to Gateway. Um, I gave you some comparison numbers of last year's budget numbers as opposed to this year's budget numbers, just so that you could kind of see kind of what the difference was. Try to, again, you look at what that attributes to. Again, when we advertise, we set the ceiling of what our numbers are. We can always work budget numbers down, but once we advertise, we set that ceiling. So when you look at debt service, that number is inflated right now. So when we put in that anticipated debt payment, as we continue to work in um, going through the sale of those bonds and structuring the sale of those bonds, we'll work that number down. And when the DOGF looks at our budget, they'll place in that number of what our actual sale was on those bonds and what that payment is. That will replace the number that I put into Gateway, which inflates what it is that we have in our projections. The other thing that factors into that is the AV. I don't put in the true AV at this point. We put in uh, DOGF 
recommends that you put in 85% of the previous year's AV when you put that number in, and that's just to protect the school corporation. And again, so that we project high, we set that limit. Um, that allows that protects us as, as far as if there was a change in AV or some different things like that. That way we can make sure that we take care of our debts uh, when we need to make those payments. So we'll continue to whittle that stuff back. Um, operations fund is pretty straightforward. Um, we are set by the, um, the levy is set by the MLGQ, which the legislature capped at 4% this year. We were eligible for the 9%, um, but again, they capped us. And so we're not able to take advantage of that increased MLGQ, even though we would have structured that within our total debt service rate, it got capped at the 4%. So that's all that I'm able to put on, on the form three. So that's what you'll see there on the form three. So again, we'd advertise, we'll go through the process of next month, we'd have that hearing, which is again, is that uh, the public's ability to come in and make public comment on the budget specifically. Um, and then in October is when we have our adoption meeting. Um, so that we actually adopt and then I send off all the forms to the DLGF and then we eventually get our 1782 notice. So uh, things are looking good. We, we feel really good about hitting our, our total uh, tax rate goal. Had another good conversation with Stiefel today about the sale of the bonds and, and making sure that we look at our strategy and to, to make sure that we land that plane where we want to land it. Um, and again, just kind of following suit with that. We put that general property tax information info on the website just so the community can look at what we're doing. And it's staying true to that plan and continuing down that road of, of managing that rate and then finding opportunities that if we feel like we can lower that total tax rate, that we will. And so that's what we've continued to look at and have discussions on. So um, when you look at those numbers, hopefully you, you've, you've all been through this process a number of times so it, you don't get too worked up as you see some of those percentages that are a little bit misleading, but uh, we'll continue to work through it and everything looks good. The school board approved the permission to advertise the 2024 budget forms unanimously. The RBBCSC school board will meet again on September 18th for its monthly session. Across the U.S., Americans have experienced record high heat waves this summer, causing drought, wildfires, and even death for people without air conditioning. According to the Indiana Climate Change Impacts Assessment, the number of extreme heat events will continue to rise significantly in all areas of the state as a result of climate change. Dana Habib, an architect and urban designer at Indiana University, looks at how climate responsive design can help mitigate climate change. Habib touched on the extreme heat this summer, attributing the causes to a variety of factors, including climate change and El Nino. This summer has been devastating for the United States, but also across the world with extreme heat. We're seeing record-breaking events um, happening across the country, and the severity of it has really been you know, eye-opening for lots of communities. Uh, we've seen this trend, or I've tracked heat wave trends across the United States, looking at how heat waves have changed over the past 50, 60 years. And so we have seen a trend for heat waves um, happening sooner, have been more intense, becoming more frequent, and lasting longer. So this is not surprising at all for us to see this type of um, change in our temperatures. We see this happening across all large U.S. cities and pretty much cities across the United States, 
Um, and part of this has to do with how we are um, just our impact on climate change and what we're seeing with temperatures increasing globally. Um, but we also see that temperatures are also increasing in our cities where we live because of what we call the urban heat island effect. And that's basically how we are designing and building our cities. Um, we also have a change this season with the El Nino uh, weather pattern, which causes higher temperatures um, um, for the United States. And so that's another reason that we're also seeing the severity. But the summer has been pretty impactful for a lot of communities across our country. Habib said that we should both mitigate climate change, but also adapt to the impacts of its effects, saying that both are impactful when it comes to climate response. I think when we're thinking about climate change, we think about it in multiple ways that we can respond. We can try to mitigate climate change and we can try to adapt to climate change. And it's important that we do both, that we try to mitigate our impact on climate change globally as well as locally, um, but that we're also putting in plans to adapt appropriately um, so that when our communities are hit with a crisis, a climate change crisis, we can respond appropriately and we can try to save lives and help our communities during these times of crisis. Um, so I think for all of us, we should be thinking about both mitigation as well as adaptation practices. She explained how human-related actions contribute to warmer weather and the changing climate. We see within climate change that humans definitely are having a huge impact on our climate. Um, we are increasing our greenhouse gases, which are going to increase our temperatures globally um, across the globe. Um, and so there's no doubt about that. Um, and so we can see these, these impacts by looking at record-breaking events that are happening um, across the United States. I mean, just this past week, we can look at the South and how many record-breaking events have happened across the Gulf Coast since they started recording temperatures in those areas. Um, we definitely see fluctuations in temperatures, um, and that happens for different types of cycles and different types of patterns. But there is a clear trend that we're seeing that the past um, several years on record are the hottest years on record, and we're seeing that continuing to happen. Um, and so we can think about how we are driving greenhouse gases and increasing greenhouse gases in our communities and globally. And then we can also think about different types of land cover change that we're doing as well. And so land cover and land cover changes can also drive um, and impact our climate. And so by um, uh, specifically in cities, displacing vegetation and, and our forest, our urban canopy, all that can go to also drive and increase our temperatures. So that's why we see that temperatures are much higher in cities than we do in surrounding rural areas um, because of the land cover change that we're doing by building cities as well. Habib described who is most vulnerable during bouts of extreme heat, in particular the elderly, the unhoused, and people with pre-existing health conditions, among others. When we're thinking about adaptation and our responses, it's important that we identify who's most vulnerable in our communities. And we see that not that people's vulnerability changes um, and that we have different vulnerable populations in our communities. We see that the, um, our elders in our communities are some of our most vulnerable, especially those who live in isolation. It's really important that we build strong um, social networks and communities so that we're checking on our elders who are living alone. 
making sure their ACs are working. And if they don't have an AC, they can get to a place that is in a, a, a cooling environment. Um, we also see uh, pre-existing health um, conditions. Um, will impact our vulnerability to heat. Um, those with pre-existing health conditions such as respiratory cardiovascular diseases. The types of medication that we're on can also inhibit our abilities to cool our, our bodies. And so that's important to recognize. We see the very young are very um, vulnerable to extreme heat, um, as well as the housing insecure. And so it's important that we identify um, the most important, the most vulnerable communities so that we can really target our policies and our strategies and our outreach um, so that we're putting plans in place that um, protect those who are most vulnerable. Habib is the principal investigator with Beat the Heat in collaboration with the IU Environmental Resilience Institute and the Indiana Office of Community and Rural Affairs started in 2021. Beat the Heat selected the Indiana cities Clarksville and Richmond as the program's recipients. Through this project, both communities hired full-time heat relief coordinators to develop programs and projects to cope with the health impacts of extreme heat. Habib described her role in the Beat the Heat project. Yes, um, I'm the principal investigator for the Beat the Heat program. Um, it's a wonderful program. We're working with two um, local Indiana communities to help them tailor and develop heat response plans for their communities. It's a program where we are, where we've worked with the communities to both understand their specific risk and vulnerabilities to extreme heat and then to develop different plans to create different approaches and strategies specifically for their communities and their communities' needs and their risk and vulnerability. She said that when looking at Clarksville and Richmond, they looked at cities such as Bloomington for comparison. She described how extreme heat has impacted the city of Bloomington, especially during last week's heat wave. But one thing that when thinking about Bloomington, I think it's important that um, a lot of times we think about extreme heat, and I specifically work in urban heat islands, but it's important that, and we often think that only addresses large cities, but it's important that we're really addressing this issue for smaller communities, um, Clarksville, Richmond, Bloomington. Um, we saw this past week, this was the hottest week that we had all summer, and we're seeing Bloomington, you know, so I have different sensors in Bloomington, in situ sensors, where we put sensors in the built environment and actually measure their temperature and relative humidity and see how temperatures are varying in the built environment. Um, and so this past week, we saw that in one of the parking lots on campus, you know, Temperatures, you know, getting up to 98 degrees are a heat index of over 118. I mean, this is really high for Bloomington. Um, and so I think it's, you know, making sure that we're collecting and understanding that data that's impacting our communities um, and, and realizing that these types of exposures, these climate exposures really do vary um, on a local level. And for us to be able to identify those specific drivers and, and try to address those as well. Another thing that's often missing too from this is this understanding between when we're thinking about extreme heat is maximum temperatures versus minimum temperatures. And so these minimum temperatures are these high nighttime temperatures. And those really drive to increase negative health effects in communities during heat waves. And we saw these, again, high um, nighttime temperatures of more than 80 degrees um, this past week in some of our hottest areas in Bloomington, um, which are, which is, you know, pretty high for this area. 
So I think it's important when we're thinking about um, our climate risk that we're thinking locally and contextually, that what's, you know, hot and risky to Bloomington might be different from other places in the communities. That's important for us to understand our specific community's vulnerability, their risk, and tailor approaches and strategies specifically for our communities that are contextually relevant. Stay tuned later this week to hear the second part of our report on recent extreme heat with our guest Dana Habib, architect, urban designer, and educator at Indiana University. Up next, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We turn now to that segment. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. First, here's today's featured animal. For today's featured animals, I want to share three special cats rescued by the Exotic Feline Rescue Center. Charlie Brown is a tiger who arrived in May of 2011 from Branson, Missouri, where he had been used in a magic show. He lived in a cage with a concrete floor. To clean his cage, bleach was dumped on the ground where Charlie walked, causing him to have nerve issues with his feet today. You can often see Charlie favoring a different foot when he walks, but that doesn't slow him down. He can be seen playing with his barrel often and enjoying his quiet life at the rescue center. George and Rodney are two male leopards that came from a mansion in Long Island, New York. A domestic dispute call led authorities to the mansion where George and Rodney's owner had the leopards roaming the house. Upon investigation, Law enforcement found ivory, heads, and pelts of other endangered animals. It is illegal to have any exotic pets in New York, so the leopards were confiscated and taken to their new home at the EFRC in 2005. Their owner is one of the few people out of all of the EFRC's stories who actually spent time in prison for his crimes. George and Rodney have an amazing enclosure on the main tour thanks to the Tony Stewart Foundation. George is not as vocal as Rodney, but he is just as active. He loves to roll with logs and other toys around the enclosure. If you are lucky, you may catch some snuggling going on between these two boys on tour. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. On today's episode of Lil Bub's Little Show, we're going to be talking about the Exotic Feline Rescue Center located in Center Point, Indiana. Since its founding in the early 1990s, the EFRC has served as a rescue center and home to many exotic felines. Their mission is to provide permanent homes for exotic felines that have been abused, abandoned, or for some reason have nowhere to live out their lives while at the same time, educating the public about these beautiful cats. 
An animal who lives at the EFRC has a home for life, a stable social group to interact with, and excellent veterinary care and attention. The Exotic Feline Rescue Center has grown from its humble beginnings with only three exotic felines and 15 acres to today caring for over 100 cats and six foxes on over 200 acres. Being a nonprofit rescue center, tours are the main way the EFRC raises money. They offer daily guided walking tours that last about an hour. On a tour, you'll learn the rescue stories of the creatures who call the EFRC home from privately owned pets to retired circus animals. You'll also learn how the animals are cared for and how you can help. It's important to remember that guests are not permitted to touch, pet, or interact with any of the EFRC cats. As a 501c3 nonprofit rescue center, the EFRC does not breed, sell, or buy any of their animals. Next to caring for these amazing animals, their biggest job is educating the public about the plight of exotic animals in their care. If you would like to learn more about the Exotic Feline Rescue's important work, please visit their website at efrc.org. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB, produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar-powered generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Clayton Young and Noelle Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Lil Bub's Lil Show is produced by Christine Brackenoff and Stacey Bradovsky. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Ashley Voss. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. 
Stay tuned for Spectrum, a program exploring science and technology, coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending New Volunteer Orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 